You are listening to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guests for this episode are Nate Kleinman of the Experimental Farm Network, Paul Glover, the founder of Philadelphia Orchard Project, Robin Mello of the Philadelphia Orchard Project, and Katrina Baxter of the Public Interest Law Center. They joined me for the first of the Philadelphia Roundtable Conversations, recorded earlier this year at Repair the World. During the discussion, they share with us ways in which cities provide numerous opportunities for permaculture practitioners, as well as visions of why working in urban spaces is important to the future of creating an abundant, regenerative world. Before we begin, a few thanks. The first is to Dirk McGurk for being the man with a plan who organized this event. It's been a while since I was in Philly, and photographer John and I had a good time wandering around the neighborhood before the event and spending time with everyone who came out that day. I got to meet a number of folks whose work I was familiar with, but had not gotten to sit down with in person. And thank you for the time that we were able to come together, not only for the conversation proper, but also for the potluck and social afterwards. The second is to Jamie Bright of Chakra 5 Studios out of Burlington, Vermont, for letting me demo the microphones that were used in this recording. They really did make a difference for being able to provide clear pinpoint sound, even with all the noise that was going on as there was another meeting in a different room at Repair the World that day. Third are the sponsors, including Your Garden Solution, and the sponsors of the day, Good Seed Company and Permi Kids. Good Seed Company has been in business for over 40 years and believes we have an inalienable right to open-pollinated, non-GMO seeds for common use. These are the seeds saved by our ancestors for thousands of years that can sustain us today and contribute to a bountiful future for generations yet to come. They're also the seeds that we can be planting in our cities and urban environments to provide food not only for ourselves, but also for our neighbors. Find out more about the rich history of this company and the importance of seed saving at goodseedco.net or shop the catalog of ecologically grown organic seeds online, store.goodseedco.net. Permi Kids, long ago, was one of the first sponsors of the podcast, and its creator, Jen Mendez, I consider not only a colleague, but also a friend within this community. Her work is creating a number of resources that inspire and nurture teachers, parents, and families who are interested in incorporating permaculture into the lives of children in the community or at home. The more time we spend closely together in cities and those peri-urban regions around them, the more vital her work is to what we're doing as permaculture practitioners. Check out her site, permikids.com, to find out more about her free ongoing podcast, as well as her community experiential education by design program and Edge Alliances. Finally, I'd like to thank you, who's listening right now, for your ongoing and continued support of this show through your donations sharing of links with friends and family, reviews on sites like iTunes, and taking the time to call, email, or write when you have a question, or just to let me know how my work is helping you. Together, we make a difference. Thank you. Now then, on to the panel of guests. I'll join you again afterwards. So my name is Nate Kleinman. I, with my friend Dusty Hins, started the Experimental Farm Network a few years ago. We are a uh, grassroots decentralized network aiming to help people come together for the purpose of breeding new plants, especially focused on carbon sequestering perennial plants. The basic idea is that we have an agricultural system right now that's totally unsustainable. It's based on massive chemical inputs and these uh, monoculture crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, canola, cotton, things like that. Uh, and we grow them uh, like an, an industrial commodity. We don't treat them like plants in an ecological uh, landscape. So one of the things you hear about, a lot about in permaculture is perennial agriculture and uh, trying to focus on plants that can be planted one year and keep on growing year after year after year. Uh, there are plants that uh, we already grow as commodity crops that are, that are perennials, obviously fruits and berries and things like that, but also crops like asparagus and rhubarb. So there have been people working for over a hundred years to breed crops like perennial wheat, which is actually something that theoretically is possible. I have a little uh, sample of some that we're, that we're growing. And 
it takes a lot of work. Perennial wheat is, quote unquote, not there yet uh, to be a viable crop. But with some work, a few more decades maybe, it could be something that contributes a, a huge part of anybody's weekly caloric intake. There are perennial oil seeds that could be developed that exist already. But these require lots and lots of work. And most of the, most of the plant breeding work that's done these days is done by corporations. Some of it's done by universities, some by the government. Uh, but the main focus is on crops that can be commercialized, crops that are going to make somebody a lot of money. Genetically modified crops that are designed to sell somebody's chemicals primarily. So uh, the concept of the Experimental Farm Network was uh, to get people collaborating on plant breeding projects for the things that we need as a species if we're going to survive climate change and if we're actually going to take, an take our agricultural system and use it to fight climate change, which is another thing that's actually possible if we switch to a perennial agriculture. You can start growing crops that sequester carbon in the ground. You don't need to till the soil every year, which releases lots of carbon into the atmosphere, destroys uh, microorganisms in, in the soil, and eventually we'll be able to put our agricultural system to work, not just feeding us, but taking carbon, excess carbon, out of the atmosphere. This isn't a substitute for reducing emissions, but as an adjunct to that, could be a really critical part of fighting against climate change. And it's not a pie in the sky notion. This is something that a lot of people have put a lot of time and energy into for a long time. There are some crops already that if we were able to switch human behavior, and switch to commodities like chestnuts and hazelnuts instead of uh, corn and soy, respectively. Uh, we could be we could be well on our way. But again, it takes it takes a lot of work. Groups like um, Badger Set Research Farm in Minnesota has been doing a lot of work for decades now on nuts as commodity staple crops, and um, the Land Institute in Kansas has been doing work developing perennial grains. Uh, perennial sunflower as an oilseed crop. So we figured if we got lots and lots and lots and lots of people working on these things, we could develop innovations faster. Uh, last year was the first year that we really went into wide release. We started recruiting a lot of people and we had uh, over 200 people around the country in 44 states and four Canadian provinces collaborating on uh, a number of different projects. The idea of having a decentralized system is anybody who has a project and is looking for volunteers to help grow for them can tap into the system, find growers, and uh, over the next few years as we roll out our website, we hope to have a way to get people <coughs> vetted by the system. So if somebody's recruiting people for a really delicate project that requires lots of skilled work, then they can, they can look to people who have shown through the past couple of years that they are um, that they're diligent and that they know what they're doing. Uh, it's been really fun to get seeds back. Some of the people in this room have been growers for us and um, have done have done a really great job. We're uh, really thrilled to, to see where this goes. We plan to start selling seeds this year and uh, hopefully we'll get self-sufficient as a nonprofit organization, selling seeds and uh, and maintaining a, a website and this, this big network. So that's that's pretty much it. Uh, the, the other thing germane to this discussion is uh, we started, Dusty and I started farming in, su in southern New Jersey a couple of years ago. We met um, in Philadelphia through Occupy Vacant Lots, which, uh, which Robin co-founded. Um, but we uh, ultimately did come to the conclusion that in order to do the kind of work we were doing, we did need access to a lot of land. Uh, we had no money, so we found farmers out there who were willing to let us use their land for free, which I think is something that uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to explore a lot of. There are a lot of people out there who have a lot of land that isn't being used to its fullest in a lot of our rural areas where people, you know, got farms decades ago and, and just aren't uh, aren't using them much these days uh, or they're renting them out to people who are using them for corn and soybeans. So that's, uh, I'll leave it there for now, but uh, I'm really happy to be here, and thanks for leading this discussion.
If someone wanted to get in touch with you, is there an email address or phone number that they can reach out to you if they'd like to become part of this network? Absolutely. Um, the best way, you can check out our website. It's um, experimentalfarmnetwork.org. We're also on Facebook at the Experimental Farm Network and Instagram. If folks are interested in joining, you're welcome to call me anytime. Uh, my cell phone is 215-264-0446. It's already on the internet, so I don't really care. Um, again, that's 215-264-0446. And uh, you can send me an email, nathankleinman at gmail.com. And as always, listeners will find copies of that in the show notes. Paul. Can you share with us some of your work as an activist and the founder of the Philadelphia Orchard Project? Well, you've invited an old man to talk about permaculture, so I will indulge, as old people do, a a, a retrospective of how I got into this and uh, an array of efforts, initiatives, uh, and on on behalf of ecology and social justice. by 1997, by 1977, oh, by 1977, after a decade of being being effectively against things, the destruction of the environment, war, and so forth like that, part of movements of, in that of that sort, realize that it's essential that we define and enact models of what we are for. So I began a career, if you can call it, uh, in permaculture city design in 1978. Uh, I started the organization Citizen Planners, 1978, which is now actually uh, pretty well established throughout the country. And uh, having started that, soon after starting that, I decided I wanted to do primary research. So I started walking from Boston to San Diego across the country. Uh, on foot and the entire way, just through the forests and across the desert to see the land and meet the people. To me, this is fundamental, to comprehend the continent upon which one is seeking enormous change, enormous change understood to be essential because our cities are so dysfunctional. Cities, even the nicest part of cities, are parts of giant machines that extract from nature through mining and agriculture and create, uh, through their consumerist processes, trash heaps. So the more noble destiny of cities, I understood, was to to bring nature back to cities, to not go back to the land, but to bring the land back to the cities, to awaken the cities, to diminish the concrete and increase, expand the humanity within cities and the beauty within cities. 1982, I got a a degree in city management with a focus on uh, metropolitan appropriate technology. 1983, I started Citizen Planners of Los Angeles, of all places, to seek to rebuild civilization, the worst case place. Wrote the book, Los Angeles, A History of the Future. The first text on the ecology of cities. Uh, Went back to Ithaca, New York, and resumed being against things there for a while. And uh, then I started a local currency, understanding that permaculture is about far more than planting things. Permaculture is about the food, the fuel, the housing, the health care, the planning, the education, the transportation, the finance, and the jobs. All of these things must uh, transform synchronously to create such permaculture cities, and so I started the local currency, which traded millions of dollars of this cash that I designed on my computer at home, among thousands of individuals and 500 businesses. We made loans without charging interest to ecological organizations and projects. We made grants to over 100 community organizations. And in 1997, I started the Ethical Health Alliance, which uh, developed to be able to cover people for $100 a year as members. 12 categories of common emergency anywhere in the world. We had members in 43 states. And uh, got here uh, uh, 10 years ago. It started the Philadelphia Orchard Project, salivating as I ride my bicycle around the city and seeing all the vacant lots. So this city has the flexibility with 40,000 vacant lots to rebuild itself entirely. 
in the direction of ecology and social justice together. And uh, there's been a lot of fun. <coughs> to now I, I, I it transferred it to people who actually have green thumbs, like Robin. I have green ideas and imagination, but Robin has a green thumb, Phil Forsyth, and a whole bunch of other great people. I just go dig holes and play with the kids. Holes for planting the trees. And, and uh, 2009, I got a contract with Patch Adams. He's the Dr. Clown that made a movie starring, uh, of his life starring Robin Williams to start the first Patch Adams Free Clinic. All we needed was land, and so have been in a saga since then of seeking two acres or more in this city, where the priority for the use of land is condos and casinos. And, uh, and uh, the, the politics of that has been extremely educational. In 2013, I put forward a plan at the Woodford Mansion to let the raspberries escape over the fence and cover a whole acre and make it an, an edible labyrinth. I thought it was a lovely plan, but of course, the realistic and people with, with a hand on budgets um, are reluctant to jump forward as fast and as enthusiastically as I have been. And then in the Logan neighborhood, most recently, as a a 40-acre vacant lot because a thousand houses had been torn down because they had been built on on coal ash, which subsided, and the houses then sank. So it's been empty for 20 years, and I set forward the plan I call the Logan Orchard and Market, L-O-A-M, Loam, to put there 100 greenhouses in this low-income neighborhood, 300 tiny houses, parks, playgrounds, Orchards, Market Pavilion, and the Patch Adams Free Clinic. Got a whole bunch of people enthusiastic about it. The Redevelopment Authority took the land, and their priority is maximum bucks. That's right. And so uh, have contended with them in public and become such an irritant that the billionaire who has taken the option on the land wanted to meet. So we had a meeting, met with the billionaire. At any rate, the billionaire's money was so attractive that most of the people who were part of the core group of Logan Orchard Mark have gone over there and become employed by either the Redevelopment Authority, the billionaire, or City Hall directly. So it's a fascinating process in a city, and as Scott said, most human beings live in cities. If cities are crummy places to live, then human experience will be awful. And human cities generate the appetite for nature, dragging nature in, and as I said earlier, transforming it into garbage. So I would like to turn that around, and my doctor says I only have 30 years to live, and so I really want to see this stuff happen fast. So I'm really glad that there's an entire new generation of people who want to transform society, poke holes in reality, create models of the, the better future which is happening. If anyone would like to get in touch with you, become a part of this process here in Philadelphia, or would like to learn more about what you've been doing in order to potentially use your work as a model to recreate this where they're living, is there a way that someone can find you or get in touch with you? Uh, my website is paulglover.org, org for organizer. And uh, I have a little flyer back there. I've written six books on grassroots economic development. So those are back there. Robin, though we spent some time earlier today recording some interviews that some folks will probably hear before this comes out, for the audience that's here and to add to what Nate and Paul have shared so far, could you introduce yourself and your role with the Philadelphia Orchard Project? Yeah, first I want to say that this is, I can't stop smiling. The, the, the people that I'm sitting next to are three of my favorite people in the whole world. Um, so this is great. Hi guys. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm Robin Mello. I'm program director for a nonprofit in Philly called the Philadelphia Orchard Project. And what the organization has been doing since 2007 is planting community orchards with various partner organizations all over the city within city limits. Um, I began as a volunteer in 2010 and was hired in at a very part-time basis in 2014. Um, and now am at, at a much more closer to full-time uh, basis. And it's a, it's a small organization, just me and the executive director and a development person that we just recently hired and some really wonderful interns over the past few years, people that just really want to work with us whether we can pay them or not. And 
thousands of volunteers who come to our planting events and our maintenance events. So currently uh, we have 52 orchards throughout the city and I'm probably going to be slightly wrong, but we have probably six or so in the pipeline for this season and many others that are on a list of, of organizations that are interested that we'll be working with over the next few years, working through land issues and things like that. 38 of those are orchards that we have helped to design and plant and uh, the remaining are what we call supported orchards, spaces that maybe don't have legal land access, so we can help them to acquire plant materials and help them with design, but they, for various legal reasons, we can't necessarily bring them on as full partners, um, or spaces that have already had fruit trees, already had maybe their own little mini orchards, uh, but need some help or need some new plant material. So um, that brings the total to, to 52 and counting. We mostly are asked um, by these organizations, they apply to us, and the more that word gets out about us, the more people are asking uh, for us to help them. Occasionally we will go to a, a larger agency like this, the Parks and Recreation Department and see how we can partner um, to use some of the city's many, many acres of, of land. But we primarily work with um, schools, churches, community gardens, um, other nonprofit urban agriculture organizations and urban farms, um, transition housing, trans, trans, transition houses, um, housing projects, historic houses. Um, we we helped to uh, design and install a two-acre orchard behind one of the county prisons uh, to be developed into a training program, horticultural training program. So it really runs the gamut, the size of what we where we will work, the organizations and the people that we will work with, we don't have set criteria other than long-term legal access because we need to make sure that the trees can reach maturity. And then we'll work with anyone. We don't really, as of yet, have a way to turn anyone down. Um, it's slightly intentional. Hopefully it will remain that way. Um, hopefully we won't, you know, our resources won't get tapped out and we'll be able to keep working with everybody. Uh, that comes our way. So we plant as biodiverse uh, an array of species as we possibly can, working with what the organization's capacity is and with what, what people want. Traditionally, people think apples. Um, so we usually plant apples uh, with the caveat that they are not easy to take care of and you might not get a great yield or they might be buggy or whatever. So we will plant traditional crops that you find in grocery stores. We'll do apples and pears and Asian pears and peaches and plums and whatever, apricots. Um, and, and then we try as hard as possible to push uh, the edges, you know, to give people uh, new varieties of fruits, things they've never heard of, things that are native and things that are non-native. Persimmons, pawpaws, um, jujubes, juneberries, um, we try to do some nuts where we can, although many nut trees are too large for a lot of the spaces that we work in. We do a lot of hazelnuts. Hardy almonds we've pushed. Uh, we've been experimenting with a little bit. Crosses between peaches and almonds and uh, figs and pomegranates um, in some spaces. We also do uh, the food forest style planting as often as possible, sometimes as a second phase of, of our planting, sometimes right away at the beginning, uh, depending once again on the capacity and understanding and ability for people to, um, to maintain the space. But we always say that it's better to do this food forest style to like really build an ecosystem and think about the medicinal plants and the culinary herbs and the berry bushes and the pollinator plants and you know bringing in as much variety as you possibly can and then getting people to feel empowered to maintain these spaces and to harvest the food and to distribute the food and really use it to take control of their health and to take back control of their neighborhoods and really build community that's really what I think is the majority of my job the designing is super fun. Um, you know, being around the plants is, is incredible. But the majority of my work is teaching people about these things once they have them. They know they want it, but they're not really sure why, maybe. And, and it's my job to, like, share my passion. And I'm just, like, exploding with love for these plants all the time. And, you know, exploding with love for these people that I'm meeting all the time that are, you know, so... That totally run the gamut. And that 
you know, that's where, that's where the, the real, like, gist of my job is. And just, like, spreading that passion for making the planet a better place to live in and, you know, making your day-to-day a little bit happier because maybe you got to, like, touch the earth today. You got to sit under a tree today. Additionally, you know, outside the city, I do a lot of work with within the musical community in the area, which really t- reaches an entirely different population. Um, I'm a musician, and I work with a really great artistic community of people to organize a local festival uh, called Beard Fest. It's usually every June, and it's uh, participatory art and, and workshops and hands-on skill shares and live art during musical performances and um, really fantastic music and just pushing all of the people who come as audience members to really participate and learn and go home with something. Um, so with that, I uh, am the lead coordinator of the education and like the sustainability aspects of that festival. And um, I'm always looking for new people to, to help out with that and to teach um, and bring their skills and bring their passions. So those are the two real, you know, big projects that I'm working on, reaching as many different kinds of people as I possibly can. And where will folks find your work, both personal and professional? The Philly, Philadelphia Orchard Project has phillyorchards.org, orchards, plural. And uh, my email address is robin, R-O-B-Y-N, at phillyorchards.org. Cell phone, which is also widely available on the internet is 215-571-9506. And you can also find um, any of the, the musical work um, on Facebook. Um, Beardfest, we have beardfest.net, and yes, beard, like, on your face. Um, I don't have a beard, but, you know, metaphysically, or metaphorically. <laughs> Maybe by the festival I'll have a beard, yeah. And, um, yeah, beardfest.net, beardfest on Facebook, and I'm also Robin Mello on Facebook. Pretty easy to find. Katrina, can you tell us more, then, about yourself and the Garden Justice Legal Initiative? So I work for a law, um, a law firm called Public Interest Law Center. Um, used to be of Philadelphia, but we cut that off. So now we're just a Public Interest Law Center. And um, in the, in the, um, we're split into five different different categories of who we help in around the city. We're a social justice law center, which means we are pro bono. And so I work in the environmental education, environmental justice, justice health, um, justice for cities department. And so through that, in that department, we have the Garden Justice Legal Initiative. And the Garden Justice Legal Initiative has, um, does a lot of, a lot of access to land. So of course you heard earlier, we have 40,000 vacant lots in the city here. About 25% which, of which is owned by the city. So navigating the process to land ownership, as um, some of you may know, is a very strenuous process to, to get through. So a lot of times, and we work, we, because we work specifically in um, marginalized communities, you know, that process, again, because of lack of resources, it becomes exponentially that much harder. And so, um, so through the course of my work, we help gardeners get resources to all kinds of garden-related things, as well as land and legal ownership, or either ownership or stewardship of land. And, um, and so also, I co-organize um, a garden coalition called Soil Generation, which most people here are part of, and Nate is actually a de facto member. So, uh, so the four of us work um, together quite consistently um, with to help gardeners around the city um, in marginalized areas, and it's an, an amazing group of um, grower activists, is what I call us now, because everyone at the table is pretty pretty activated in, in the work that we do in the community. And um, together, we're trying to forge some really cool, um, really important urban ag policies, and so we do policy work as well. Well, the job that I'm in and also through Soil Generation being able to aggregate a large sort of garden community so we have a voice in, um, in City Hall and also on the, hopefully more so in the state and the national level of getting um, urban agriculture into the policy chain of agriculture, right? So right currently we don't really have, you know, it's not, urban ag is not considered agriculture in the national, on the national level. So there are a lot of um, resources that we don't have in urban areas that we could have if we were deemed 
agriculture, um, like like rural spaces. So that's uh, one of the things that you know I think people should be aware of and, and thinking about you know national policy moving forward. That's one of the larger things on it that we need to have you know when we think about sort of transitioning. Like what does it look like for us to um, to be doing these in these urban areas, not only in rural spaces but in urban spaces as well. You know we need the same resources that, but they're also not taking away from the resources that they have in rural spaces. Right, being very conscious of the fact that we are losing our small farmers and they are losing their land at, a, at an exponential rate. And so trying to find a way where we can bridge, you know, support amongst each other in the small ag business period, right? Um, so that's um, a lot of what I do. It's around just helping us come together as growers and understanding politically where we are, where we stand, and what we and what our needs are moving forward um, to make sure that this is a equitable, you know, space and, and, and movement that we're working towards together. And I also um, I'm on the coordinating body of the Black Permaculture Network. Which is, um, which you know, it's, it's a website. You guys might there's a Facebook page as well, and um, and you may have may or not have heard of it. But we are working nationally to bring more people of color sort of into the fold of permaculture and and and, and understanding the um, the barriers right between people of color um, attaching themselves to the term to the term permaculture because it's not really about the skills that the skills that permaculture and in, inhabit. In, in because a lot of brown folks that I know, black and brown folks that I know around the country, are practicing. You know, agroecology, um, you know, practices in some some form or other, but I don't really want to necessarily, you know, align with permaculture. So, what does that mean for us in the permaculture community, and how do we and how do we address that? Is like a constant, you know, a constant issue that I work on within the within the national larger community. We also do have a Facebook page called Permies United that's dedicated specifically to, towards like working on those issues within the permaculture community and. Um, pretty active at times, you know, sometimes it's not, sometimes it is, but it's a lot of good information that goes on there, uh, and that people, and people participate in the conversations, and just, you know, opening up those conversations, which has been a large thing in the permaculture for the last few years, I think, and understanding and trying to understand how do we, you know, how do we encompass, you know, everyone, and how do we, how do we fold everyone into what we're trying, to, what, what, what our message is, um, and how we make that happen in a way that everyone feels comfortable. So yeah, that's pretty much what I do. If someone wants to get in touch with you to follow up on this, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Through my work at the Garden Justice Legal Initiative, we have a website called groundedinphilly.org. And actually, it's a really cool website. What we do on that website is we map out all of the gardens in the city. So if you were, if you have a vacant lot, we map all the vacant lots in the city, and we're in the process of putting on that putting on that map as well all the gardens that are in the city. So if you have a vacant lot next to you and you want to garden on it, you can look in there, see who owns that property, see you know if they have back taxes, whatever the case may be. So it's a really good open source tool for folks who, you know, for they aggregate information from different parts of this, um, from different city organizations. So it's sort of all right there in one place. Um, and that came out about four years ago before the city had, the city is now with the land bank. They have something very similar to that. Um, but ours is, is more comprehensive, I think, for, at, this, at this point, because we started ours a while ago. It was really difficult sort of to find out who owns what space, that kind of thing. And so now we sort of have it all in one, in one database there. And so you can contact me through that website and also check it out because it's really cool. And we have a blog on there as well. So Generation has a blog on there. And it's sort of every now and then we have articles once a month. We put up posts and things to, see, to let people know what's going around the city, what kind of work people are doing in urban agriculture, um, and just uh, highlighting some of the really um, amazing members that we have who are part of who are part of Soil Generation. So, so that's one of the ways that you can that you get in touch with me. And then you can also find me at kbaxter at pillcop.org. And so that is my work my work um, email address, and I, my cell phone number is not so published everywhere. Although I use it all the time in my community organizing work. I try not to give it out all the time. So it's grounded in P H I L L Y. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a Y. Yes. We do have some time before the end of the first round. So comes my question. Why do this work in an urban environment? Leave it broad, open, and kind of scary with how big that question is. But if any of you would like to use that as kind of a jumping off point for what you've been doing over the last several years or a lifetime. What gets me up in the morning is that cities are full of beautiful children. They grow up in really hard and unpleasant places, quite often, by the millions and the billions around the world. And I believe that my notion of progress is that cities become as beautiful as the children within them. 
But that is what we should define as successful economy, a successful urban development, a successful life that we contribute to that creative process. Yeah, I think about um, I think about for me for black for like so for for black people most of us sort of our ancestors coming from the south the the relationship with us in the, in the urban areas is really specific to our to our plight you know um, in this, in this country um, and in being a press group and and um, during the Jim Crow time you know when things were so bad that people just didn't want to stay in the south and, and it was very difficult to stay in these rural spaces right and to protect yourself and your family and your land as well and so and so I'm sure we all know that you know there's a history of you know um, damage being done in hurtful ways to brown folks and black people who had land, who have land in, in these rural spaces. So, you know, so a lot, for a lot of them, you know, it wasn't really a choice of, you know, it was a choice of survival, right, to move into these urban areas because, you know, can we, can, can we stay here on that rural space? You know, can we stay here and can our family, you know, can, can our family continue to live here in a way where we won't, be, we won't be attacked, right? And so a lot of times it was, you know, to get away, you know, we moved up to the urban spaces. And so um, one of the things we talk about a lot within the black growing community is, you know, how do we um, sort of bridge this relationship, again, the same sort of question that you have, between our folks in rural spaces and our, and our, and our folks in urban spaces, and also sort of repairing the relationship that we have with the land, right? Because we suffered so much and on this land here in the United States, and, and you know, in so, in so many horrendous ways, but we also know that there's healing in the land, right? So, you know, those of us who know that there's healing in the land, sort of trying to, you know, to raise that up again within our communities and, and, and to show people that this is what we need actually to, to give back to ourselves, right? And so it's difficult to sort of um, to sort of think of a way, right, to sort of to say that this thing that causes so much pain, right, for such a long time is also this thing which gives us which can give us healing. And so trying to trying to find ways to connect those those experiences for the people in urban areas is really important. So setting up and finding and having access to, to urban spaces, to rural spaces where folks in the urban areas can move into, um, and just even if it's just for a finite period of time, so they can get you know relationship build that relationship with the land and then be able to take that back to urban spaces and then say, okay, we want to create something like that here, right? Where do we find sanctuary in urban spaces is a huge thing that we, um, that is constantly talked about. So right now I'm working on this project with the Art Museum and, um, and, and there, and the, and the large emphasis of that is how do folks in urban areas in Philadelphia, how have we been resilient, right? So what are the ways in which we have, res have resisted? And sanctuary is a large part of that. So how do we create sanctuaries for ourselves in these urban spaces where a lot of us are, are living now and dwelling now? And I would say that in, with my experience with permaculture I, and working with brown people, it's always been in urban areas, you know? And so um, even though the emphasis, you know, traditionally had been on, you know, these rural spaces, it's been practiced in the urban spaces for quite a long time and reimagined in all these really amazing ways that, um, that should actually have more, you know, have more um, emphasis on. And now as we move forward and then people are seeing that there's so many different ways to interpret what permaculture is, you know, to, to individuals. do this work in Philadelphia because it is so incredibly rewarding. It's so beautiful. You know, even when it's not, it is. Philadelphia, you know, I tell people all the time, it has its teeth in me. It's a city, it has its teeth in me. You know, I've never really lived in any other city. I've been to plenty of cities, but I can really only speak about, you know, why do this in an urban, urban environment as specific to Philly. Um, the city has so many layers and such an intense history um, and such vibrancy as a result of that. And, and you know, it, it is everything all at once. And that's completely overwhelming. Sometimes it's maddening, but mostly it's just extremely exciting. And the knowledge is already here. The people who live here already know how to take care of themselves they have it's in our it's in our veins it's in our spirits it's all there some people have forgotten it some people you know maybe don't know it's there until you start talking to them about it um, but a big part of why I do this work here is you know it's it's simultaneously to teach and to learn you know it's it's just as selfish as it is selfless is you know 
always giving and taking from people and from the and from the land and figuring out what that balance is. Um, I would absolutely not be anything like the person I am today if it weren't for all of the people that I have to deal with on a daily basis and all of the challenges that I have to face in order to be able to interact with those people on a daily basis. And you know that is something that I think more people would really benefit from it. You know, challenging themselves to just be around as many different types of people as possible. And also, you know, using whatever it is that you're passionate about and using that to make a life that more and more people can be a part of. You know, the, what keeps me from, you know, completely going out of my mind on, on a daily basis is the fact that I am able to be with the land. I'm able to be doing, you know, interacting and seeking solitude in spaces in the city that a lot of people don't even really know exist. Um, but simultaneously, while I have that, you know, that ability to, like, be in open spaces and to be working with plants and to be, like, really literally digging into the earth, I'm simultaneously, you know, being a part of what everything else that's going on around, you know, and I think that you know, contributing, being able to find whatever it is that, that makes you, that brings you joy, and then being able to use it to create positive change instead of just constantly banging your head against the wall. You know, like what you were saying about fighting against something versus fighting for it. I learned after burning out really hard after the Occupy movement that I don't want to fight against things. I want to create things. I want to create, you know, I want to provide vision. And yeah, sometimes I get angry, but I always want to make sure that that anger is used as fuel for creating something positive. And that is a really great thing. I mean, cities, people are doing that here all the time in millions of ways. And it's just a really great way also to know that you're not alone. Um, you know, being in a rural environment, sometimes you might think you're really alone. I tried that. I wasn't really good at it. <laughs> well, I was uh, I was born in Philly and uh, grew up in the suburbs, and I've I've also lived here, um, and I've always I've always had to get out into the country whenever I've been living in an urban or suburban environment, and you know I think it's it's. Like Katrina was was talking about, it's a real fundamental unfairness that so many people who have a heritage that is rural and agricultural live in these places now where um, where they're so alienated and often from uh, from that kind of lifestyle. And and that's one of the things that um, that Dusty and I wanted to do in in building this farm in South Jersey on on somebody else's farm was to create a space where people could come uh, come from the city and we haven't um, we haven't had we haven't had as many events where we've brought people out but all the times that people have come from the city especially Philadelphians who've come out and and kids who've come out it's been transformational you can see it on can see it on their faces and hear it in their voices that just spending a day working uh, working on the farm is is um, is such a magical thing for so many people so that's definitely something that that I'm interested in uh, facilitating more of not just on our space but in uh, in other spaces as well we've tried to work to get uh, to build relationships between other uh, people in the city and outside and that's sort of on the micro level one thing that we're doing but on the uh, on a on a bigger scale one of the things that is exciting about this experimental farm network project is that we are able to uh, we're able to get great help from people who are living and gardening or farming in cities. Uh, if you're if you're interested in doing plant breeding work and you want to help someone who's who has who is a plant breeder, if you have even one square foot of space that you can grow something, you can be you can provide a service to somebody who's uh, who's breeding plants. You can work on breeding plants yourself there. Um, some we've had some just last year we had some really amazing growers who were growing in you know in the middle of uh, Detroit or um, Los Angeles uh, or uh, New York City and um, so it's exciting to be able to to be able to provide that um, that uh, step into 
something innovative and something that uh, people wouldn't expect they'd be able to participate in if they're just uh, just in a in an urban environment. I think about when I think of, I think about plant breeding all the time in this city because we really the different so we you think about space and distance you have to plant away from GMO seeds in order to get a true seed um, and actually urban areas are really ripe for that right you know we are not close to farms so I'm consistently thinking that you know like we should grow more corn because like God knows we want organic corn and, and it's so difficult to grow that in rural spaces now without being tainted right so you know that's like an untouched market but then here you got to deal with the squirrels and so now what do you do with the squirrels and come eat your corn you know right before it's right so but but there are so many things so many advantages sometimes to these urban spaces when it comes to things like plant breeding which we could be doing to help out you know or, or rural spaces at times when at some point you know when there's not maybe so much so much GMO seed out there if we have you know if we have seed stock here that we've been holding and sort of you know breeding and 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 and, and saving then um then we could we would we could be the nexus of recreating our agricultural system and to think about it like that is really is really important because it's an advantage, you know, where we, we sometimes don't see advantage. And that's one of the, you know, rules of permaculture, right? We're supposed to see all that, all of those things. And I also just reminding, remembering to highlight the, the work that's already happening within urban areas in permaculture. And I guess just through books and reading, you know, that have gone out previously, the emphasis has been on urban, on rural spaces. However, there's a ton of work happening in, in, in urban spaces that's just not being, that's just not being um, written about, right? But, the, but people have been practicing it for decades within and within urban spaces. So, you know, it's really just about what we highlight, what we choose to value when we think about, you know, these ideas of permaculture. One last thing on the, on the subject of plants. There are, people don't think of uh, urban areas as ecosystems themselves, but we've seen just in the last couple of years, um, we've had some really interesting plants spring spontaneously out of the soil in Philadelphia. I'm really a big fan of sorghum, which is a, a great grain that I actually cooked some of for lunch later. Uh, and two years ago at the Peace Park in North Philly, mm -hmm. we saw a sorghum plant about this tall coming out of the ground. We realized what it was and it was a really productive little plant. It produced maybe four or five heads from one plant, probably was dropped by a bird, came from bird seed or who knows who knows where, uh, how long ago, if that is a variety that's just been floating around Philadelphia. And uh, we took it out to the farm and planted a big row of it and are selecting for the, the best producers. And so there's going to be a new variety of sorghum out there in the next few years that started in North Philadelphia spontaneously as one plant and you know the plants that can survive in this environment um, have some really powerful genes they're they're incredibly resilient the lamb's quarter that's growing around here as a weed we took some of that out too planted out rows and are working on selecting some some productive strains of that so it's uh, there's so much about the cities in addition to the to the you know being a, a life preserver for a way to get away from GMOs, you know it's so much easier to isolate other crops that, are, that you're just worried about crossing with other varieties to keep them pure. Uh, you know if you know that nobody's likely to be growing a particular kind of squash within a quarter mile of you, um, but you d you don't know that as much when you're in the suburbs or in the city when there's a lot more gardens around. In the in a city you're able to. You're able to go to all of the gardens in a quarter mile of, of where you are and say, "Hey, are you growing a you growing a Maxima squash this year?" and and find out if you have to bag the flowers on yours or if you can just let the bees do their work. Bees are doing well in the city. Yeah, there's yeah. A, there's a lot of bees around. People are making great honey in Philadelphia. Yeah. It's another really good place for yeah to be away from the the damage of pesticides for bees. Absolutely. The New Eden. <laughs> well, thank you all for being a part of this first conversation and sharing more about each of your lives and your work and why this particular city and urban environment is of such meaning and value to all of you. And that was Nate Kleinman of the Experimental Farm Network, Paul Glover, the founder of Philadelphia Orchard Project, Robin Mello of Philadelphia Orchard Project, and Katrina Baxter of Public Interest Law Center from the first of two sessions recorded at Repair the World in Philadelphia. You'll find all of their contact information and more in the resource section 
of the show notes for this episode. I'm grateful for what all of them shared with us today because of the unique role that cities can play in our lives. Growing up on a somewhat rural dead-end street as part of the beginning migration to the exurbs of the small city of Hagerstown, Maryland, where I called home throughout my childhood, there are always large connected lawns with houses fully inhabited. My neighbors didn't move until they had sold their home and there were no vacant lots. Land there, as with where I now call home, was expensive and rarely available. Farms butted up against well-manicured lawns, and no one I knew at the time grew a garden once I moved out of my early childhood home. Yet, where I am here now, just outside of Harrisburg or in my tours around the city, I find people growing and planting in ways that I didn't in the far suburbs. Yet in Philadelphia and other cities like it, there's an opportunity to walk short distances to find many neighbors in open spaces, as well as old plants that we might not have known about, such as Nate's reference to sorghum, and also an opportunity to breed new plants adapted to the spaces that more and more people will inhabit in the future. And while we do so, to care for the people around us, to understand the historical and cultural underpinnings of a place and its people so that we can know the issues like access to land, systemic racism, or oppression, so that together we can mitigate those vectors that limit cultural and individual abundance and truly build a great and regenerative world together. Along the way, if I can assist you wherever you call home, whether that's in a city, the suburbs, or a rural area, and whatever leg of the journey you're on, whether you hold a permaculture design certificate, are just new to these ideas, or grew up in a family that's been farming for many generations, get in touch. My phone number is 717-827-6266. My email address is show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. You can also reach out to me there if you'd like to organize a roundtable recording like this where you live. I'm always open to traveling to meet others doing this good work and to share thoughts and voices with the world. If digital means are not your preferred way to reach me, you can also drop something in the mail. That address is The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. To connect with the show and other listeners, you can leave a comment at thepermaculturepodcast.com for this episode. You can become a sustaining member at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Find and like the show on Facebook, where it's The Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. On Twitter, I am at permaculturecst. And also recently, I've moved to Instagram on the suggestion of Blake Kirby from Daddy Curb's Farm. And you can find me there as Permaculture Podcast. From here, I'll be on the road in April, returning to Berea, Kentucky in the Clear Creek community. While there, on April 23rd, 2016, we're holding Spring into Permaculture, hosted by Clear Creek Schoolhouse. The day starts at noon and heads on into the evening with a potluck and in-person recording of the podcast. And Jeremy Zimmerman, author of Make Mead Like a Viking, will be there teaching a mead-making workshop from 1 to 3 p.m. Find out more at clearcreekschoolhouse.org. After that, on June 18, 2016, is the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Conversions outside of Charlestown, West Virginia, hosted by Emma Huvos of the Riverside Project. The keynote speaker for the day is Michael Judd, talking about his experiences as a permaculture practitioner, beginning with Project Bonafide and moving on through his return to Maryland, where he wrote Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. Along with him, there will be classes and workshops on living in the gift, animals and permaculture, broadacre permaculture, whole systems learning, as well as plant walks and tree ID sessions. As this event is limited to 100 tickets, pick up yours today at midatlanticpermacultureconvergence.eventbrite.com. Next up from here is an interview on integral nonviolence with Chris Moore-Backman, someone who I became familiar with through my conversations with Ethan Hughes, and he's completing his manuscript on the Gandhian iceberg, which details nonviolence and is something that I think is really important to our work as practitioners moving forward. So stay tuned for that, and until the next time, spend each day working with others wherever you live to create the beautiful possibilities that we could want in the world. A regenerative place that takes care of Earth, yourself, and each other.